Consideration for this episode of Earth Destruction Directive has been provided by Tim Elliott, a.k.a. Tim from Texas. Tim writes, Hi guys, just doing my part to keep the shows coming. I would like to sponsor the next Earth Destruction Directive. My message is I want to thank Luke for working so hard on EDD and to everyone working on all the Two True Freaks shows. Thanks guys, Tim from Texas. Thank you, Tim, and to show my appreciation, I'm going to tell you that some of my favorite things come from the state of Texas, the Alamo, the 1994 Houston Rockets, and Akeem Olajuwon. I guess Olajuwon kind of came from Nigeria, but he played for the Rockets, so I think that counts. Thanks a lot, Tim. This one goes out to you. Enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth. Destruction directed, 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 directed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Would like to welcome everybody to the show. And I hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at two classic episodes of the Tsuburaya Tokusatsu show Ultraman featuring the monsters Green Mons and uh, Gezera. And I also hope that you enjoyed our Gaiden episode that came out uh, previously, which was Gaiden number three, which was taking a look at the disaster epic Prophecies of Nostradamus. Hope everyone uh, got a kick out of those shows. I certainly had a lot of fun recording them. Uh, we got a big show today. We're going to be taking a look at a Millennium film. We're going to be taking a look at the uh, very highly regarded Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All-Out Giant Monsters Attack. Very popular Millennium-era film. 
And of course, we also have Shogun Warriors number 10 from the Marvel Comics group, uh, continuing our coverage of the Shogun Warriors comic. Before we get started, a couple of bits of notes. Of course, as you are listening to this, the legendary Godzilla will be coming out on Friday, the 16th of May, so about a week from when I'm recording this. It'll be going uh, wide. Check your local listings for uh, if there's any midnight screenings. I don't know if there are any midnight screenings here where I am, but sometimes we get them and sometimes we don't, so be sure to check that out. I will not be able to catch it opening weekend as I'm going to be out of town, but I will be picking it, uh, pick, taking in a show very early <laughs> the week after as soon as I get back. Uh, the legendary Godzilla is being supported by a toy line. Now, the Godzilla toys are in wide release now. I've seen them at Toys R Us, I've seen them at Target, and I've seen them at Walmart, and there's various different Godzillas at different sizes and price points, so if you want a plastic rendition of the new legendary Godzilla, it's out there for your consumption, so go ahead and check that out. I'm looking for the little super deformed ones. Uh, I've seen I've seen the tags for them at Toys R Us, but they've been sold out every time I've checked, so got to take a look at that. Uh, on a non-legendary Godzilla front, uh, we've been giving hearing a lot of updates lately about new uh, Daikaiju releases on DVD and Blu-ray. I've got another one here. Uh, Mill Creek Entertainment, who released the Ultraman box set. They also released the Godzilla the Series box set, which is forthcoming. They have also announced the Gamera Legacy set, which is a DVD set, not a Blu-ray release, that has 11 Showa and Heisai Gamera films. So basically every Gamera film except Gamera the Brave. And uh, it's crammed onto, I think, four discs. And this is $13 or so on Amazon. So if you don't have a Blu-ray player and don't want to get the, uh, the Mill Creek releases, Mill Creek and Shout Factory, I should say, releases of the uh, the Gamera films on Blu-ray, this might be a good option. Get all the films on DVD. So uh, uh, it looks pretty good. Uh, I said I'm, I'm probably going to get the Blu-rays. I have the Blu-ray player. So I may go that route. But, you know, this is looking pretty attractive as well. And, of course, if you buy on Amazon, be sure to use the uh, Amazon.com link on 2TrueFreaks.com. Lastly, a little bit of 2TrueFreaks uh, intra show promotion here. If you haven't checked it out, go take a look at, or take a listen to, I should say, Commentary Monthly Monday. Uh, the latest one was episode 421, because Scott and Chris take a look at Godzilla 98. And Scott, kind of uh, well-known in, in our circle for being a fan of Godzilla 98, and I think they, they give a, the film a good shake. Uh, they treat it fairly. Uh, I had uh, had some issues with some of the things they were saying, but you know, I figure the time to rebut that will be when I get around to covering Godzilla '98. So, as a lead-in to the legendary Godzilla, a good little commentary for you guys to listen to and uh, take a look at. Um, you know, a film that has has a lot of detractors, but certainly does have some fans in there. All right, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and then when we come back, we're going to get into the action with Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out, Giant Monsters Attack. Coming soon on Two True Freaks. Beware the beast man. A month-long celebration. For he is the devil's pawn. Of one of the greatest science fiction series. Alone among God's primates. Of all time. He kills for sport or lust. Covering all the films. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. All the comic books. Shun him. The toys. Drive him back into his jungle lair. The entire phenomenon that was. For he is the harbinger of death. The Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes, a month-long event. 
coming soon, only at twotruefreaks.com. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and let's get right into our epic coverage of the suitably epic Millennium film, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out, Giant Monsters Attack, which was released in Japan in 2001, and has never been theatrically released over here, but is available on DVD from Sony Home Media. It was directed by Shusuke Kaneko, who directed the Heisai Gamera films. Writing credits are Keichi Hasegawa, Shusuke Kaneko, and Masahiro Yokotani. Producers are Hideyuki Hanma and Shogo Tomiyama. Music by Ko Otani and director of special effects Makado Kamiyaya and Shinji Higuchi. In the year 2001, it has been nearly 50 years since the Great Beast Godzilla attacked Japan. And while they have not been attacked since, Admiral Taizo Tachibana preaches to keep the JSDF ready to face any monstrous threats which may arise. For the general public, however, Godzilla is little more than a vague memory. That matters little when an American nuclear sub disappears off the coast of Guam, with claw marks slashed up and down its side. The Admiral's daughter, Yuri, works for a low-rent TV production outfit specializing in cheap, quote-unquote, documentary programs about the supernatural. At Mount Miyoko, there's a tremor during their production, and then Yuri sees a mysterious man wearing priestly robes, but the man promptly vanishes from sight. That night, a group of motorcycle punks are trapped in a tunnel after another tremor, only this tremor seems to have a moving epicenter. Yuri continues to dig into the supposed supernatural history of Mount Miyoko and eventually is given a book which details a prophecy about three great guardian beasts, Baragon, Mothra, and Ghidorah. The next night, a group of obnoxious teens end up dead at Lake Akita, drowned while entangled in a silken substance. Yuri and her team continue to investigate the prophecy, finding the mysterious old man. His name is Izayama, a seeming prophet who is being held by the local police. He tells her that Godzilla is not just a mutated beast of nature, but also the embodiment of all those who died in World War II, a fuel which makes him seemingly unstoppable. He also tells her more about the three guardian beasts, who long ago were defeated while defending Japan, but have been resting and rejuvenating. After leaving the police station, Yuri finds an amulet near where the Temple of the Dragon Ghidorah is supposed to be. Shortly, Maganote in the Bonin Islands is leveled, seemingly by a massive storm, but Tachibana suspects that there is more. In Motosu, the monster Baragon emerges from the ground, causing confusion and panic, all of which gets pushed to a new level when Godzilla himself lands as Shizuka. The towering monster smashes all on his path and unleashes his atomic breath, causing a nuclear explosion which can be felt and seen for miles in all directions. Godzilla makes a beeline for Tokyo, and Baragon moves to intercept. When the two monsters meet at the Hakone Valley, the battle is brutal. Baragon fights valiantly, chomping into Godzilla's thick scales, but in the end he is defeated, blasted to death with atomic breath. And the whole time, against all official demands, Yuri films and documents the attack, doing her duty as a journalist. As Godzilla continues towards Tokyo, Yuri follows on a bike, filming and narrating with her camcorder and an internet link-up. The JSDF launches an air attack on Godzilla, but they are dispatched almost immediately. With conventional weapons proving worthless, reinforcements begin to stir in the form of Mothra, having hatched from a cocoon as a giant moth, and in the caverns which used to be his temple, Ghidorah stirs and wakes. Yokohama is chosen by as a defensive line, and the JSDF will make their stand there. 
Yuri arrives, and though she is stopped by the barricade, her father gives her permission to go into the battle zone, as the two begin to understand each other, and that each has an obligation and a duty to serve. Godzilla soon lands in the city, but is met by Mothra, who aggressively pushes Godzilla back. The battle is then joined by Ghidorah, and the two guardian monsters double-team Godzilla. But he is not so easily defeated as Godzilla smashes Ghidorah to the ground, incapacitating him, and blasts Mothra with his atomic breath. Godzilla then turns his attention to the JSDF, leveling their weapons and armor. In one last desperate push, Mothra uses all of his remaining energy to attack and is annihilated by atomic breath. But his sacrifice is not in vain. His glowing energy seeks out the prone form of Ghidorah and revives him as King Ghidorah. Now with his wings towering, the battle is on again. Godzilla tries to finish off the Golden Dragon with a massive burst of atomic breath, but King Ghidorah blocks the beam and returns it, wounding Godzilla. The combatants crash into the harbor and battle underwater, while Admiral Tachibana plans to use the D-03 Borer missile to kill Godzilla by firing it into the wound. Piloting a small submarine loaded with the D-03, Tachibana ventures into the underwater fray as Godzilla and King Ghidorah continue to struggle, and that is where I'm going to stop my synopsis. Uh, very, very fun, enjoyable film here. Lots of monster action, lots of monsters in general. Uh, solid human plot. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. This one is a, a fan favorite, I think, for a reason. And uh, I had a lot of fun rewatching it. Let, let's get into some notes. Now, the original concept for this film, uh, as far as the Guardian monsters defending Japan against Godzilla, uh, fe featured different monsters than what we ended up with. Now, one of the complaints I hear about this film is the uh, idea of King Ghidra being a good guy and a guardian monster, and it's like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, and there's a rationale behind that. Because originally, the three guardian monsters were Baragon, Angurus, and Varon. And the three of them, you know, smaller monsters than Godzilla, you know, fight tooth and claw, old school kind of earth monsters, they make sense as the guardian beasts. King Ghidorah and Mothra seem a little out of, pro out of place. Uh, now, the story goes that Kaneko was uh, dispirited because his, his friends didn't know who all those monsters were. And uh, so he put in more commercially viable and well-known monsters. Uh, and uh, the odd thing is that Baragon made the cut and Anguirus did not, which kind of is uh, disappointing to a lot of American fans who are big fans of Anguirus, whereas in Japan, Baragon holds about the same level of popularity that Anguirus holds here in the States. So I thought that was, that was amusing. Very early on in the film, we get a joke at the expense of Godzilla 98. Uh, during a touch upon his briefing, two of the officers talk to each other, and one says, Hey, didn't Godzilla attack New York in the 90s? And uh, the response is, Well, that's what the Americans called it, but we're not so sure. So a little dig at Zilla. Of course, uh, Zilla would become, uh, you know, an official part of the monster pantheon a few years later in Final Wars, but I thought this was funny because it essentially says that he is part of it right here, but he's not Godzilla, so I thought that was nice. The soundtrack, which is by Ko Otani, uh, has a definite kind of uh, earworm uh, presence to it. It's very catchy, but it's very simple. There's one theme that's used uh, repeatedly. It's just dun, 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 dun. It's used a lot during the film, especially during any of the monster scenes, and it's very catchy. It's not, you know, the most creative or the most uh, stirring music or soundtrack, but it's a good soundtrack and it does help the movie a lot. It makes it stand out a lot more than the um, you know, kind of uh, I'm trying to think of a best word for it, for the soundtrack for Godzilla X Megaguirus, which to me had kind of a 
kind of corny feel to it, whereas this seems much more well-suited to the very epic scale of the action that's going on in the film. And it'll stick in your head after you watch this. I know uh, after watching this, I've had it stuck in my head for a few days. The first monster that we get a real good look at is Baragon. We see him in the tunnel when he uh, traps all the bikers, and we see his eye, and uh, he really looks good. In fact, Baragon in general looks fantastic in this in this film. Um, you know, he his his face looks great, his scales and body looks good. He looks proportionate. You know, they do a good job of making him look like he's actually walking on all fours and on his hands and knees. Uh, his ears, which used to flop around, they they seem much more controlled now. They look a lot more organic. He doesn't have his uh, his beam weapon that he used to shoot from his horn. He's much more tooth and claw now, but Baragon comes off really well. In fact, all the monsters generally come off really well. The next monster we're introduced to is, of course, Godzilla. And what's interesting about this design for Godzilla is that a lot of people look at it and say, oh, this they, they reverted from what they were doing in Godzilla 2000 and Godzilla's Megaguirus. And a little bit, but not really. It's still the same essential body type. It's got the big scales on the back, the you know the uh, the kind of uh, jagged scales, the, the long neck, you know. But instead of being more hunched over, like he is in those two films, and like Godzilla will be in the following films, he stands more upright in this film, much more of a Showa-style stance for Godzilla. So it does make it look a little stranger and a little more uh, uh, in a little more different than I think it actually is. The other big change, of course, is that they put the uh, the white eyes. They don't give him any pupils. He just has white eyes, uh, which is, you know, everybody knows that makes somebody look scary. And he does look, Godzilla looks very powerful and very scary in this film, and he definitely is the strongest force on the screen. So really great job of portraying the King of Monsters in this you know, his real return to villainy since 1985, you know, the return of Godzilla slash Godzilla 1985. This is the last time Godzilla really played a heavy, and he does a great job of it here. It's a really good uh, performance. Uh, we're introduced to the DO3 hardware when they're uh, trying to bore out the tunnel that's been uh, blocked in. And you look at this big, it's a giant missile with a drill head on the front. You look at yeah, that's going to become important later, I think. Maybe I should remember that, file that one away in my mental Rolodex. Huh? So, of course, it's no big surprise when it does, in fact, become important. Uh, Ghidorah in this film is a stand-in sort of for Orochi from the uh, Japanese legend of the eight-headed dragon Orochi, which is kind of funny because a, guy, a King Ghidorah suit was modified into an eight-headed dragon for an Orochi film that Toho made in the 90s, so I thought that was kind of amusing. Uh, to me, it's a little bit of a stretch. I understand what they're doing, again, trying to legitimize the idea of King Ghidorah as a heroic guardian monster and to, to connect it to the Orochi legend. And it works a little bit. G uh, Ghidorah's got probably the weakest design of the monsters in this film, which is kind of sad, because uh, in order to make him less... Uh, you know, not as powerful looking as Godzilla. He's smaller than Godzilla for, for the first time, really. And until he gets powered up into King Ghidorah, his wings are sagging down. His necks are kind of short and stubby. And his face is very interesting because in order to pay homage to Varan, who didn't make it in the movie, they made his uh, King, they made Ghidorah's face sculpt look kind of like Varan's, and it doesn't work. It looks a little dopey. It doesn't look as uh, sharp and menacing as we saw previously in the Heisei film, and as we saw in the Showa era for King Ghidorah. So he, he doesn't work so well, but 
it's uh you know it's still it's still good to see him and the part where uh, he comes up and his wings spread out is a huge crowd pop moment but be that as it may the scene uh in the uh in the bonin islands there's a it's a series of just odd set pieces all in a row where we see some kids who are uh, you know having fun and the they're playing ping pong and i guess it's just some teenagers on vacation or whatever and one of the one of them says oh godzilla that poor creature and and then another one says oh godzilla would make a great pet and i think that this is kind of kaneko tana taking a shot at the idea of the softening of godzilla that had taken place since 54 that now you know uh you know we're looking at him in a more sympathetic light or a more fun light whereas it started out as something that was uh kind of terrifying and he's returning godzilla to his frightening roots in the film so that that was a interesting commentary because these people of course end up getting smashed and killed by godzilla uh momentarily after making these comments once godzilla lands on the bonin islands uh, we see, I'm guess, uh, I'm assuming is the proprietor of this uh, hotel in the kitchen, and everything is just falling off the walls. All the dishes, all the pots, everything is just falling off the walls on her, and it almost takes on like a comedy moment a little bit, like a yeah, like a pratfall sort of situation with all this stuff just falling. But it's a very realistic depiction. It looks like an earthquake with Godzilla landing because of uh, the, how much the earth itself is shaking. Now, then we cut to what I'm assuming is her husband in the bathroom trying to pee, and he ends up peeing all over the place. And it's it's funny, but at the same time, you're like, did I have? Did I really just see that? Did I really need to see that? The guy peeing when the when Godzilla comes. Of course, all of that goes out the window when the giant foot smashes the uh, uh, the building to the ground and eliminates all these people from the story anyway. So I thought that was an interesting scene with a juxtaposition of a little bit of comedy and then just outright smashing. Yeah, that was that was nice. It stands out. Uh, that really amuses me. One of the concepts in this film that's a little uh, controversial is the idea that Godzilla is powered by the restless spirits of the dead from World War II. I, I don't know what to think about this sometimes. I kind of come back and forth. I understand where we're going with this. The idea that that's what gives Godzilla his complete uh, unstoppable nature is that he's fueled by these these spirits of all the innocent people that died. And, uh, you know, and I, this I think gets back a little bit to what we talked about when we did Godzilla versus King Ghidorah, where, you know, talking about the war for a long time was taboo in Japan. And whereas that film talked about it in a way where, uh, you know, the, the, oh, I forget his name, the, the businessman in that film was, he was a uh, commander in the army, and then he came back and he went to success, and they didn't talk about, uh, you know, the war. Here, it's kind of addressing the, the horrors of the war. And to me, from a thematic sense, that makes a lot of, from a thematic standpoint, I should say, that makes a lot of sense, because, you know, the Godzilla was, the, you know, the walking atomic bomb. So to have him directly connected to all the innocent blood that was spilled in World War II, all those, you know, restless souls of the dead, makes sense. They, it's, I think it's a little weird to some people because we're used to our Godzilla films having kind of a pseudo-scientific explanation, whereas this one's much more of a pseudo-supernatural explanation. I like it. It's not a huge part of the film, but it does stand out for a lot of people. Mainly, you know, uh, to me, it's it's I'm willing to accept it and not think about it too much. If I think about it too much, I start to see some of the cracks in it. And, you know, it's it's like the mixing of the science and the supernatural. 
And, you know, it's the whole science versus magic thing again, I guess. But uh, it works for the film. I'm glad that it's only in this film, though. I wouldn't want that as an ongoing theme in the character because I think that might pigeonhole you a little bit. But in this film, in GMK, it works really, works well for me. Uh, we get a flashback to 1954, speaking about Godzilla's uh, first attack. Now, we don't actually get to see Godzilla, but we get to see Tachibana, uh, the elder Tachibana, fleeing as a child and losing his parents and, uh, you know, all the people fleeing in terror from Godzilla. And this scene is, is very short, but I think it's really well done. It really conveys the, the sense of panic and the, uh, you know, the sense of the unknown. We hear Godzilla, we feel the ground shaking, but we don't actually see him. So it's just the fear of the unknown, again, is a lot of times much more effective what you don't see than what you do see. And, and this, this, and again, I wish this scene was longer. I would have liked to have seen, you know, um, Godzilla, but I, I think it's a good choice not to do it at the same time. I enjoyed this part. It was, as I said, too short. Maybe another minute of this would have been fantastic. When Baragon arises, now remember, Japan hasn't seen a giant monster in 50 years, almost. And so when Baragon arises, he's assumed to be Godzilla, and they call him the Red Godzilla for a while. Until Godzilla actually arises, and then there's confusion of which, you know, which Godzilla is which, and and they don't really know what to, you know, how to, you know, they don't, there's confusion and panic. It's a lot like what happens during an actual disaster. You get a lot of, you know, contradictory information, and no one's quite sure what's going on, and people are working on false assumptions. Now, what's funny here is that uh, they begin to call him Baragon when Yuri brings the prophecy to their attention and says, "Well, for ease of for you know ease of identification, let's call these monsters by these names," <laughs> which is I thought was kind of hanging a lampshade in the fact you watch these movies and they always know what the monsters are called just because, you know, their name is on the title. And this was kind of like, hey, well, this is the way that they know that. Here, Here's a reference manual that tells you the one that's on all fours is Baragon, the one that's a bug is Mothra, and you know, the one with three heads is Ghidorah. So I thought that was really kind of funny. It's a good, a good bit. And the confusion, to me, is also very realistic, so I like that. The monsters have very smooth movement. And I said uh, Godzilla moves very smoothly, not lumbering, just walking very good, very organic. Same with Baragon. Uh, and then uh, you know, the Bar- especially these two guys kind of get lumped together because they have a fight directly to by themselves. And they are the two that are ground-based on in, and in suits. So their, their work together is just fantastic in this movie. The fight between them is one of the highlights. And uh, Baragon has never looked better. You know, end of line has never looked better than he does in this film, and uh, I think I think a lot of American audiences are starting to warm up to Baragon a little bit more based on his performance in this film. Even though he does, he even though he does get killed, he goes down fighting, and he goes down a real trooper. Uh, before Godzilla tangles with Baragon, though, we do get to see his atomic breath, and I'm putting atomic in air quotes up to the mic because. You know, we see him charging up his uh, beam and charging it up, and then we cut to miles away as a teacher begins to evacuate her students from the classroom. And then a, uh, the earth rumbles, and there's a flash of white light, and she looks out the window, and it's a mushroom cloud. So to me, that's always been just a brilliant uh, explanation of what Godzilla's beam is actually like. It's a contained nuclear explosion. And again, for a country that had two nuclear bombs dropped on it, that image is very, very powerful. And seeing that that mushroom cloud rising up over the horizon, uh, miles and miles away from where Godzilla fired his beam, uh, really hits it home. And so the beam is treated very respectfully in this film. 
you know, one of the criticisms, especially some of the later Heisei films, that they become beam wars, with the monsters just firing beams back and forth at each other. Whereas here, the beam is treated very, very respectfully, and when he breaks it out, it is, it's a big deal every time he does it. There's a great animation that goes on of him drawing in energy into his mouth, and his spines begin to light up, and it's, oh, it's just really, really nice. Uh, frankly, I hope the legendary Godzilla's beam is treated half as well as it is in, in GMK and not just uh, spammed in there. Really nice. Uh, during Baragon and Godzilla's fight, there's of course a couple that wants to take a photo of the monsters behind them. And when Baragon comes up uh, on, the, uh, on a cliff above them, they get killed in the rock slide, as they should for being stupid. Uh, during the fight, Baragon has a bit where he leaps off of a mountain and then chomps down on Godzilla's arm. It's a great bit of work. You know, a very heavy suit that they've got to leap, uh, you know, using wire work and everything and make it look natural. And it really does look good. And then, of course, uh, you know, Baragon gets just stomped into the ground by Godzilla's giant foot and then just annihilated with atomic breath. And he puts up a good fight. My brother made a point. He's like, you know, poor guy doesn't even get on the, the title. You know, puts up a, a fight all on his own, some doesn't even make the title. It's like, yeah, some people are there only to carry water, I guess, and poor Barragon's just not a star, I suppose. After the uh, battle between Godzilla and Barragon, we get a scene that's in a triage center where we see all the injured. And I really like this scene because, to me, it reminded me a lot of the very beginning of, uh, of Gojira and of Godzilla King of the Monsters, where we get the the makeshift hospital with the, the children wailing and the, you know, the bodies of the dead and dying littered about. And it's, it's very, it's not as powerful as the scene in the original Godzilla, but it, it brought me right back to it. And I, I can't believe it wasn't intentional to connect it back to that scene of showing the, the aftermath, because a lot of times you get in these big monster mash movies and we don't think about all the people that are hurt and, and killed in you know when the these monsters tear through a city whereas here they definitely point it out and make a point make a deal out of it um and and i i like that i like that there's you know this takes place in a fairly realistic setting considering it's a very fantastical film and i said besides it's science fiction elements there's a lot of supernatural elements but it, it definitely is taking place in the real world and i thought that was really nice then we get introduced to Mothra, and Mothra in this film is pretty much completely CG, uh, which does have its advantages. It means that the wings flap really nice, for the most part. We don't have any super slow wing syndrome like we did in uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra. Um, the, the body is... It is a moth body, but it almost behaves a little bit more like a... Uh, I don't know, a stinging insect, because Mothra's main power in this is he shoots uh, projectile spines, stingers almost, off of his abdomen. And so he looks, I don't know, it, it's, it's kind of a, a, a more uh, streamlined sort of Mothra, not the traditional look. But he looks really good, and for the little bit of screen time he gets, he puts in a good showing. Between, um, I don't know that this is going to be anybody's favorite portrayal of Mothra, but it's definitely a good one. I mean, Mothra shows up so much in the, uh, uh, you know, in in the later Millennium or in the Millennium films in general that we kind of get between the Heisei uh, Mothra films and the Millennium films with Mothra, and it's like, wow, it's a lot of Mothra. So this one's not one of the more memorable appearances because it's so short, but it's still a good um, a good showing. Kenigo throws in a Cosmos reference, which I thought was funny. When Mothra is flying towards Yokohama, we see two uh, two girls who could be twins watching intently, and then they look right at the camera. I thought that was a nice little throwaway gag there. 
Uh, we get a reference to Dr. Sarazawa, uh, as Tachibana talks about that Godzilla was stopped in 1954 with a scientist's experimental weapon, but he's dead and all the drawings are, are gone. So that was nice, you know. Uh, if you know it's Dr. Sarazawa, and honestly, if you're watching GMK and you don't know who Dr. Sarazawa is, I'm assuming you're watching it with someone else who can explain it to you. So I thought that was nice. Uh, Godzilla and Mothra fight in Yokohama again. It's like, well, we just did this. Godzilla vs. Mothra, they fought in Yokohama. So I thought that was funny. Uh, I don't know why we fought in Yokohama instead of Tokyo. I guess, uh, you know, being on the water like that, maybe they thought they had a better, you know, better visuals that they could use. But uh, it is amusing that they're back in Yokohama again, uh, not even ten years after they fought there in their the, the Heisai film. Uh, I do like the set of Yokohama, though. It's really nice. It looks like a full set right on the effects tank. So you got the, the harbor and then the city, and it's just really a really nice set, and it looks really good with the monsters moving through it, especially when you've got the fact that it's a composite shot with Godzilla being a physical effect and Mothra very often being a CG effect, and then you've got the human aspects and stuff. So it's really, the Yokohama sequence itself is really well done, and I, I think it's some of the best effects we got in the Millennium series is in, in this sequence in the later half of this film. Uh, during the battle, of course, Mo we see Mothra taking a blast of atomic uh, breath and just being torn apart. And it's rare to see Mothra in this kind of death row. Normally, you know, when Mothra dies, it's like in Godzilla vs. The Thing, where she dies and then to protect the egg and then the new ones hatch. Whereas here, she dies and then she becomes the glitter, the 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 glowing balls of glitter, like in the Heisai era, and immediately goes and powers up Ghidorah into King Ghidorah. Now, I, I said uh, earlier that the, you know, when his wings, when King Ghidorah's wings sprout out, that's a, a cheering fan pop moment. I'm going to tell you a little story. The first time I watched this film was I got a VHS rip of the Japanese, I guess, Laserdisc? I don't know. Laserdisc, VHS, whatever. Um, through a dealer on eBay, and I was watching it down in the clubhouse of my friend's apartment building when uh, I was just out of college. My, most of my friends were still in college. And we were watching it one night, and it's in it's subtitled, you know. And sure enough, when uh, you know, the energy flies onto uh, Ghidorah and powers him up, and his wings snap up out of the ground, we literally were screaming and cheering at that point. So they they succeed. Kenneko succeeds in making us cheer for the King of Terror, which is strange when you think about it, you know. Baragon being a good guy, fine, you know. He he's just kind of a monster. Mothra being a good guy obvious. Godzilla being a bad guy you can deal with, but King Ghidorah is a good guy, that's just odd. It's just strange but they make it work and, and they make him, by making him more vulnerable to Godzilla and not towering over him, even in his upgraded form, they make us more likely to, to cheer for him and it, it works out nicely. So, I, I like that shot quite a bit. And the sequence in that where King Ghidorah stops the atomic breath and returns it very kind of classic sort of almost anime uh, fighting technique of you know taking their best shot and returning it back to him. And then he does break out the gravity beams at the end, which I thought was nice. And oh, then again, nobody calls them gravity beams because the prophecy didn't say, oh yeah, that three-headed dragon can shoot gravity beams. They just take it as it comes. Now the big finale involving Tachibana and the sub and Godzilla and King Ghidorah all underwater, it's... it's I've heard some complaints about this because it's humanity that defeats Godzilla, not the Guardian monsters. And I actually kind of like that because the idea to me is that it's humanity versus Godzilla. And if the Guardian monsters are not, you know, they're, they're not outright saviors. Mankind must save themselves. The Guardian monsters are there to help. 
and to defend the the homeland but they're not you know they, they don't just lay waste everything mankind needs to help too and so the you know the fact that it's the wound is caused by king Ghidorah, but the uh, final blow is struck by tachibana i thought that was nice it was the you know the humans working with the guardian monsters to defend japan from the rampages of godzilla i i like it and uh, I, I think it it goes out well I think the human story aspect of it ties in very nicely because, you know, the two Tachibanas, we've gotten to know them through the film, and this this ending, you know, helps bring the human story back around where it also has a closing. It doesn't just end. Sometimes you get these films where the human story just kind of ends because the threat is gone, whereas here, we you know, we get a sense that these characters have actually grown a bit and and have a new found respect for each other where they didn't at the beginning and so the, the human aspect is nicely served by this well which again is not super surprising because kaneko did similar stuff with the human stories in the gamera films so I, I thought that was a nice touch and it really helps the film out quite a bit uh, frankly this is a awesomely fun film it's a great entry point for a non-fan if you've got a friend maybe a, a, a spouse or significant other who's not a Daikaiju fan. This is a good one to get them started on. It's got good effects, and the story's easy to understand, and it's fast-moving, and it's fun. So it's pretty easy to get them into that versus perhaps one of the more obscure uh, or slower-paced films. Uh, the concept of Godzilla as an unstoppable force and then the Guardian monsters themselves, it's easy to digest, it's easy to get behind. You know, like I said, uh, it's not so convoluted that you can't figure it out but it's not so simplistic that it's you know uh, uh, you know uh, childish it's divorced from the rest of the series as far as the details but it's still very closely tied from a thematic standpoint with the original film which ties in with the two previous millennium films where they kind of ignored everything except the original one and then the Heisei you know series did that to an extent they tied in with each other but then only the original so this kind of follows in that tradition and you don't even really need to know that much about the original. They tell you a lot that you need to know, and uh, you know you just kind of roll with it. The special effects said very good. There's lots of action. Human story makes sense. It's actually integral to the plot too. It's not just uh, some. I can go either way. I like stories where the human plot and the monster plot are kind of incidental to each other and they intersect. A good example would be Gator, the three-headed monster. But here, they really do kind of drive each other, and I, and I like that. And so when they come to a satisfying conclusion, it's, it's uh, you know, it's as a viewer, you feel more fulfilled in that sense. But uh, down, frankly, this is one of the best of the best from the G-Series, and you can't go wrong with this one. Uh, now, if you want to watch this one, it is available for free online streaming at Crackle.com. Of course, Crackle.com is supported by ads, but it's free, so that's to get what you pay for. Uh, it is available on DVD from Sony. I don't know if there's any Blu-ray releases planned. I haven't heard any announcements for any Blu-rays, but the DVD is pretty nice. It uh, looks clean. It's got, you know, the Japanese language and subtitles, and then the international uh, uh, Toho's international dub in English. Um, you, this one is shown sometimes on Sci-Fi Channel, though it's been a while since I've actually seen it on Sci-Fi Channel. It has also one of the absolute greatest titles of all time, uh, <laughs> Daikaiju Shoujinki. But uh, yeah, so if you haven't seen GMK, check it out. Go to Amazon.com via Two True Freaks and uh, and pick up a copy or check it out on Crackle.com. You won't be disappointed. If you listen to this show, you will definitely enjoy uh, this film and get a real kick out of it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive.
Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge evil. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. All right, we're back, and now it's time for Marvel Comics Group presenting Shogun Warriors, and we're taking a look at Shogun Warriors number 10, which is cover dated November 1979 and released on August 7th, 1979. This information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, found at dcindexes.com. Our cover of uh, the comic has Kombatra battling with what looks like a five-fingered Serpent Demon Hand. Yeah. We'll get more into that. Good cover, though. Looks nice. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, our writer is Doug Mensch, penciler Herb Trimpey, inker Jack Abel, letterer Diana Albers, colorist Carl Gafford, editor Alan Milgram, editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter, and our title is Five Heads of Doom. In Japan, Genji Odashu's court hearing has been interrupted by the sudden appearance of a flying five-headed serpentine demon hand monster. Dr. Tambora immediately transports Kombatra to the scene. The battle begins before Genji can even get on board with the demon hand punching Kombatra to the ground. Kombatra lays prone as Genji gets to the controls managing to break into the five component modules just before being smashed by the hand. But the monster is still game as the five snake-headed fingers launch independently, sprouting weapons as they go. Meanwhile, in Madagascar, Elongo Savage and Judith Jones are researching the Star Child monster, from the last issue, when the Institute is threatened by a mob demanding that the presence of the Institute is why their city was attacked in the first place. Elongo is able to talk the crowd down but confides in Judith that he doesn't know if he can, what he can do if the town is attacked again thanks to being inhabited by a Shogun pilot. Back in Japan, it's an all-out war between the five Kombatra modules and the five snakeheads, with both sides blasting back and forth. Genji is able to save her friend Kosei from being swallowed by one of the snakeheads, much to his amazement. Out in California, Richard Carson and his lady friend Dina are enjoying an evening at home when they discover a man in black having broken into the house and stealing Richard's filing cabinet. They both fail to witness, however, the strange green glowing light off in the Hollywood Hills. All subplots accounted for, thank you to Sean Engel, it's back to Japan as the battle continues to rage. The forgotten hand piece of the monster re-enters the fray, reforming the full demon hand. Genji has no choice but to recombine Kombatra and the battle is about to continue when the JSDF arrives ready to take aim at both of the giants. Next issue, the conclusion of Kombatra's epic battle with the Hand of Five. More mystery, and a surprise ending in... Headed for Doom! Oh boy, a lot of action this time out. Uh, this, this book, you always get your money's worth if you want an action comic uh, in, in Shogun Warriors, I'll tell you that. Now the cover is kind of a, a standard Shogun Warriors style cover with uh, one of our heroes fighting a monster. It's nicely laid out. And something that uh, Trimpy's given us throughout the series is he put 
people at the bottom to show the scale, and I really like that. It does a nice job of selling the giant scale of both Combatra and the Hand of Five, which I'm guessing is what this monster's name is. It's never said in the narrative, only in the next issue box. Um, one of the hands is chomping down on Combatra's arm. Two of three of them are spitting fire. Really looks nice, very dynamic. The, the, mon the Hand of Five itself, very green with, with red trim, but I like it. it. It's very kind of simple... But it does, like I said, evoke the old uh, demon hand from Japanese myth. Very neat here. Um, page one is our splash page. It's very weak. It's a weak splash page, which is atypical for this series where the splash pages are normally very, very exciting. This is just kind of boring. We get um, Genji, uh, her pendant is projecting Dr. Tambora on the wall, and coming in from the right-hand side is one of the serpent heads, which has grabbed somebody in a tongue. Um, the lizard tongue is nice, but overall it's just not up to par with previous page one splashes we've gotten in the series, so not starting off on a, on a great foot. But we turn the page, and then pages two and three are a double-page splash, which is much, much better. You almost get the feeling that Trimpy wanted to do this as the splash page, and they said, no, no, but you know what, make that a double splash and you can really spread it out because on the left-hand side, we see the hand of five flying in as Genji dashes underneath it towards Kombatra, who takes up the entire, almost the entire right-hand side with Kirby Crackle all around him as he shimmers into existence. This is fantastic. It's, it great looks at both the monster and Kombatra. I really like this, this splash. Uh, really great work by by Trimpy, and the coloring and inking is really nice. Abel's inks, I mean, all that Kirby crackle looks fantastic. There's some really nice blacks for the shadow on the Hand of Doom, and then the colors from Carl Gafford. You know, there's some nice orange, there's green, uh, you know, it's really, really nice, really nice page. I may try and scan this. I know I keep saying that, and someday I'll actually remember to scan these pages that I keep saying, so... Uh, turning over to page 7, panel 1, uh, the Hand of Five forms into a big fist and flies up and punches Combatra in the face with the great sound effect, CRAM! Which, uh, you know, sounds like a rude thing you might say to a lady on a bus, but that's neither here nor there. All I can say is, yikes, with that, and uh, Combatra goes down like a ton of bricks. This is a great sequence. Really very funny. Again, I, I could see this panel just being taken out of context, and you have no idea what it is. Just CRAM! <laughs> Turning over now to page 11, panels 2 through 5, we see the components of Combatra split apart. Now this struck me, as I was reading this, it, it kind of occurred to me, this is kind of an interesting setup in that it's the reverse of a standard, typical super robot. The idea of a super robot normally is that you've got five little pieces that combine into the big robot, but Combatra is a big robot that splits into five pieces. I know that you're saying, Luke, you're saying the same thing. No, I'm not. Think about this. The The main form is the merged Combatra, and then it can break apart into smaller pieces. It's not where the main form were five piloted robots that all merged together like a Super Sentai robot, you know? So it's, it's an interesting take. It's, a, it's almost like it's a Western take on a super robot where splitting apart is the feature, not merging together. I don't know if uh, maybe I'm just thinking too much into that, but I like it because it's, it's, it's again, it's, it's looking at it from a different perspective and it makes it more interesting. Now you can use the idea of splitting apart into strategy more so than typically in a, a super robot from a tokusatsu or an anime where they, it's rare that the individual components get a chance to shine. You know, there's some exceptions. Go-Go 5 springs to mind. Bokenja springs to mind where, 
you know, they're there just so they can combine to form the big robot to fight the monster. So I like it. And it's use, it's really nicely done in this sequence as well, because the five components go and fight on their own. And then the, um, yeah, you know, we get a nice matching uh, in a couple of pages where the fingers fly off. So we have the hero and monster matching each other move for move. Turning over to page 14, panel one. Uh, oddly, Apparently, all of the almost all the components for Combatra can fly, even the ones that seem like they should be ground-based. Now, I didn't go back and look in the last time Combatra split up to see if they flew then, but I don't remember them doing that. But you know what? Um, um, if I'm going to accept giant robots and monsters, if I can't accept that the the one that looks like a race car can also fly, that's my problem, not you know, not the books. So. Uh, page 15. As I said, we see the uh, fingers launching off, which is uh, another. A neat uh, concept here. The the panel one just shows them all launching out of the ground, which I thought was, it looks like a really crazy fireworks display. And so, you know, light and get away. Further on down the page, uh, starting with panel four and then going through page 17 is a look in on Alongo Savage. I thought this was an interesting twist on the old kind of uh, cliche of the heroes are the ones that make the villains and bring them to town. Something you see a lot in Batman and Spider-Man comics. You never really think about that for giant monsters. You know, uh, Angel Grove perpetually being destroyed by monsters because the Power Rangers live there. You know, uh, maybe if they moved... Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, you, there's got to be some city council member who's not happy with him. I'm assuming that this is going to come into play and that Alongo is going to have some trouble with these folks down the line. But for right now, it's just an interesting little look in. And uh, Judith is wearing a, uh, it looks like a button-up dress thing with long sleeves. She looked much nicer in the wetsuit. Just going to put that out there. Uh, I'm not going to go full shag and say she's hot, but, you know. Um, turning over now to page 17, panel 6, back in Japan, Genji, who was in uh, her street clothes, or should say civilian clothes, uh, from her court hearing, now suddenly in her uniform. Wow, these, these shoguns can do anything. Uh, I only really think I noticed this because when Carson and Dina were in uh, riding a couple issues ago, they had to, you know, Carson had to put on his uniform, and Dina didn't have one, whereas here, apparently she took time while flying around in, in her, uh, her uh, jet module to, to put her uniform on. You know, you got to be professional about this. Uh, page 19 is a one-page splash. This is a much better splash than what we got for the opening. We have all ten component pieces battling each other now. Uh, each of the finger modules have a different weapon on them, and of course each of the combatra modules have different weapons, and they're zooming all over the page. Things going every which direction. Different weapons firing different directions, different things scoring hits on other things. We get you know, uh, uh, they're battling over like an elevated highway, it looks like. You can see people pouring out to escape and cars being abandoned. Another great job, you know. Uh, the team of uh, Trimpy, Abel, and um, Gafford just really do a nice job on, on this page. And it, this book in general, you know, that first class page being a little boring, fine. The rest of the book has looked really nice. And that's actually been something I've really enjoyed about this series in general has been... Um, Herb Trimpey's artwork and the guys, uh, guys and gals that have worked with him on that—it's really been a treat for such a visually uh, uh, bombastic, you know, kind of over-the-top series with more giant robots and monsters. And this page is just fantastic. Uh, turning over to page 23 and goes through page 26, we get the Richard Carson look-in. And with the green glowing right, I get the suggestion that maybe these Men in Black are not the mundane government-type Men in Black that we were led to believe. 
Hmm, maybe there's something to that that will come up later. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And then finally, on page 30, after the hand of five reforms, combatra reforms, and all I can say is merge for combat, and it looks like it is going to be on. And then, of course, you add the addition of the JSDF into it, and they look like they rolled right out of a Godzilla movie with the, the tanks, with the Japanese flag on the back, and the, uh, the, guy, the, uh, the covered trucks with the men jumping out. You know, that's standard issue show-up Godzilla movie uh, sequencing right there. I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, and then, of course, we get the teaser for next time with more Doom! Solid, all-out action issue. Really great. Lots of fun. Uh, let's take a look at some ads real quick here. There's a few interesting ones in this book, especially considering the subject matter. First, we get an ad for the NBC Saturday Morning Peacock Club, which is a questionnaire about the different shows that NBC was going to be showing on Saturday morning. Now, this doesn't really... Uh, you know, This is, in and of itself, nothing all that special, except that... Question 8 is, the world-famous Godzilla is a, A, giant frog, B, green ape, C, flying fish, D, big reptile. Of course, the answer, eh, I'm going to go with D. So I just thought it was funny to see the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla pop up in a Marvel Shogun War book. Things get a little more on the nose. We go a couple more pages forward, and we get a full-page house ad for... Shogun Warriors. Now, not for the comic. It's for the toys. It says, action fans, get your free Shogun Warriors iron-on transfer. All you have to do is send in proof of purchase from any four of 17 Mattel Shogun Warriors figures and vehicles shown on this page. It says, stage your own battle of the Shogun Warriors. And it's got, oh my goodness, it's got all of them. It's got Poseidon, Great Mazinga, Dragon, Voltes V, Rydine, Deimos, uh, Dangard, it's got all the, um, the the tanks, the Veritank, the Shigon tank, Shigon jet, Solar Saucer, Sky Arrow, Vertilift, the Veritank, the Dimos truck. And then it's got Guy King at the bottom. So just send us the end flap from any four Shogun Warrior or vehicle packages on the coupon on right, and we'll send you your Shogun Warrior iron-on transfer absolutely free. My God, good job, whoever did this. Because, you know, it's got... Right in the book with the Shoguns, it's got all the toys. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The iron-on patch they show is pretty neat, too. It's got, um, across the top, it's got uh, Guy King, Rydine, uh Mazinger, and... Is that Combatra? I get no, yeah, it's no, it's Dimos. It's actually not Combatra, it's Dimos. And then on the bottom, it looks like, looks like it might be Rodan and Godzilla's heads. Just enough that they probably don't have to actually say it's Godzilla and Rodan. Really nice, though. I, I saw this ad. I just brought a huge smile to my face. Uh, let's see. We get an insert for uh, fine jewelry, which is interesting only because it's on sh- glossy paper. It's like a page from a modern comic being in the middle of this uh, Bronze Age one. Uh, we get a house ad for Howard the Duck and Tomb of Dracula. Two concepts way too wild for color comics. Two all-new black-and-white blockbusters from the Ma- mighty Marvel magazine department. Interesting combination there. Did, did Steve Gerber ever work on Tomb of Dracula? No, he didn't work on Tomb of Dracula. Yeah. Uh, we get a bullpen bulletins page with the uh, another ad for Warriors of the Shadow Realm. And then on the Warrior Dispatch letter column, we get a different one for Warriors of the Shadow Realm. I thought that was uh, kind of funny. And then we do, in fact, get a hostess ad starring Captain Marvel. It's entitled Captain Marvel vs. Professor Sneer. Propelled by a glittering beam of photons, Captain Marvel closes in on Professor Sneer's spaceship, Sun Killer. 
I must stop Professor Sneer from extinguishing the sun. If I don't, all life in the solar system will perish in a lethal cloud of ice crystals. Professor Sneer, Captain Marvel, not even you can stop me from destroying the sun. Everything then will be nice, nice and frigid. Ha ha ha. Your problem is that no one's ever done anything nice for you, but I'm going to change that. Well, you'd better do it fast. I've set the sun killer ray on automatic. Professor, just taste this delicious hostess, hostess Twinkies cake. Mmm, nice golden cake, nice creamed filling. This is the nicest thing anyone has ever done for me. Captain Marvel, one good turn deserves another, so I'll lay you, let you turn the sun killer ray off and turn the ship around. The sun is still in business, and so are Hostess Twinkies Cakes. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies Cakes. Yeah, Captain Marvel, uh, he's a pretty boring character. You know, even his hostess ad is a little boring. Good job there, Marvel. And like you say, best thing about him is that he died. Just saying. You know, I love Jim Starlin, but he, you know, as Adam Warlock was a lot more interesting. Um, good issue. Solid. All out. I know. I really liked it. Actions pretty much from the start with only minimal interruptions for subplot. And frankly, almost zero character development. What's funny is they do actually promise more character development in coming issues in the letters page. So I thought that was funny back when you could address things like that in the letters page. Uh, the 5 on 5 battle was really nice. The monster very creatively executed. And there's more combat promised next time and a deepening of the plot. What what more could you want? You know. Overall, I liked the issue. Thought it was fun. If not exactly the most thought-provoking read, but frankly it's Shogun Warriors. I'm looking to have fun. You know? And that's all I really ask. In fact, of most uh, Bronze Age comics, most comics in general, just entertain me. This book has been doing that consistently. This one's no exception. Totally looking forward to the next one. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo. Come on back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Podcasting. The Final Frontier. This is the Hammer Podcast. It's 30-minute mission. To rehash geeky topics. To seek out new bastions of nerdiness. To timidly go where the more talented have gone before. The Hammer Podcast is the official podcast of the blog, The Hammer Strikes. Both the blog and the podcast come from the mind of your average late 30s geek. In other words insane ramblings about science fiction and fantasy minutia. If that interests you, please visit thehammerstrikes.com Part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and in my hands I have your emails. Now, I don't have all of the emails from the inbox. I've got uh, a decent number, so we're just going to do a couple here, and then we'll pick up some more on the next episode. Our first email is entitled, Yet Another Studio Restraining Order, and comes from my good friend and yours, the world's biggest Oswald Cobblepot fan, Jack Dower, who no doubt is sitting right now in his uh, behind the innocent looking facade of a bookstore planning his next move to bring down the caped crusader in some kind of bird and or umbrella related plot jack writes greetings detective in shogun warriors issue number nine the star child is a great looking monster it reminds me of something the fantastic four might find in the negative zone or dr strange might see in dormammu's dark dimension amen to that 
totally. I could totally see Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby drawing that monster as something that we'd see in the Silver Age, especially Ditko in uh, uh, Doctor Strange strip. Man, that'd have been fantastic. I mean, Trippy does a great job on it. I'd love to see that monster interpreted by some of the other guys from uh, the Marvel era, the the, the Marvel, Marvel Silver Age. Jack continues, if you were going to throw it up against a modern Marvel property, who would you pick? I'd like to see it go head-to-head with Thin Fang Foom on the giant monster side. As far as our size heroes go, I'd love to see the Impossible Man go after it, because MB can match every shape change addition that Star Child can do. What do you think Iron Man would do against it? You know, Iron Man fights giant monsters um, in in uh, the Denny O'Neill era of Iron Man. He fights... Uh, Mutated Godzilla actually fights uh, Dr. Demonicus and his monsters. And I just read, actually, last night with my older son, Iron Man number 150, where which is this, the you know Iron Man and Dr. Doom in Camelot, and Iron Man fights Morgana Le Fay's pet uh, hawk, which turns into a dragon. And, uh, you know, I think, I think Iron Man would probably fight the Star Child the same way that he fought that dragon, as he can't fight it with brute strength, so he uses... Uh, technology and science to beat him. In the case of the dragon, he gets a concentrated pellet of Freon and freezes him so that he falls from the sky. He can't flap his wings anymore. I think Shellhead would try and use his uh, brain to engineer a solution, something like the Star Child. Uh, as far as against Fin Fang Foom, I'm up for Fin Fang Foom fighting any giant monster ever. That would just be fantastic. So totally, Fin Fang Foom again, uh, versus Star Child, uh, $44.99 on pay-per-view. I'd love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, Jack continues, here's my question. How do you compare the original Ultraman series to the modern episodes? Do you think with the success of films like Iron Man and Pacific Rim, there could be a profitable Ultraman series here in the U.S.? How would you bring one to the screen? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. I, You know, the I'm, I'm watching the current Ultraman series, which is uh, Ultraman Ginga, and the effects are obviously a lot better, and, you know, it's shot on really nice digital stock, and... You know, the music is good and the, you know, but in a lot of ways, the modern Ultraman stuff, well, from a technical standpoint, it's really good. It doesn't have the kind of simple charm of the originals. You know, the original Ultraman series, one of its charms is that it really was a monster police procedural. You know, it, it followed a format and it followed a formula, much like a, a regular, you know, your Law and Order style police procedural would. And I think a lot of American audiences get, with, with the exception of those who like Police procedurals get very angry and, you know, vitriolic over the idea of a Monster of the Week show. Uh, I know when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. started, that was, I Monster of the Week show, I can't, you know, this sucks, you know. And it, it's the same criticism people leveled at Smallville, they leveled the first season of Arrow. And it's like, these genre shows, it's like, if, it, if, it's, if it's a procedural like that, they, they quickly grow tired. They want universe building. I think you could do... An Ultraman series that did a lot of universe building. I know Tsuburaya did them all through the, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. Would they translate to the U.S.? That's a tougher question. There's this big stigma against uh, Daikaiju here in the U.S. that it's silly and campy and kid stuff. And you know, even a, a film like Pacific Rim, it had to fight against those stereotypes to be the moderate success that it was. Remember, you know, this was the this was uh, you know relative to uh, the where it grossed around the world pacific rim was not a huge hit here in the u.s it was a huge hit elsewhere in the world where there's not necessarily the same stigma against daikaiju and giant robots so i mean i would like to think that ultraman could work that Subaraya could bring um ginga or 
you know, even something like Mabus or one of the other 90s series over and uh, just, you know, dub it and bring it over straight. But the last time we did that, we got the Fox Fox dub of Tigo, which treated it like a joke. And I think that's the problem. I think it's going to be a hard sell to get it as a serious science, treat it as a serious science fiction show and not just as a stupid kid show. You know, that's unfortunately the path that Tokusatsu has taken for a lot of people in this country. How, how profitable? I don't. I mean, it would be profitable enough for the people importing it, but I don't think it would ever catch on more than one season, frankly. Uh, you know, the Power Rangers brand is the anomaly that kind of the exception that proves the rule, if you will. Uh, a good question, though. I mean, you know, I, I've. They, I think Subaru would love to bring Ultraman to the to the West in a real meaningful way. And I just think if they knew how to do it in a successful way, they could. If they could find a partner that could market it correctly, they would do it. Uh, Jack continues, thanks for a great show. Keep stomping and stay safe out there, Jack Dower. P.S. Is the bombastic Birdman of Banditry slotted to be in the new Batman Superman film? I don't think so. Everyone else is, apparently, in the entire DC universe, but not the Penguin. We are getting a, a young Oswald Cobblepot uh, in the new TV show Gotham, which just got announced as getting a full... Well, it actually got announced a few weeks ago, now I'm thinking about it, as a full season order from uh, for Fox. So we will see uh, Cobblepot. He's not going to be the Penguin yet. Apparently we're going to deal with his origins a little bit as a, uh, a low-level uh, mobster working his way up, which might be interesting. I, I'm kind The jury's kind of out for me on Gotham. I'll give it a try. Um, I'm not a huge Batman fan. Uh, I frankly would much rather watch a show focused on uh, Oswald Cobblepot rising through the, the ranks of <laughs> Gotham's underworld than I would uh, necessarily on um, you know a young Jim Gordon investigating the death of Bruce Wayne's parents. But I guess we'll see. You know, I didn't think I'd like Arrow, and I like that show, so who knows. Thank you very much for writing in. Jack, always glad to hear from you. Uh, and I had to think of you the other night. I was cleaning up my bonus room uh, uh, in my house, and I set up my Superpowers Penguin uh, along with Secret Wars Kang, and they formed the, uh, you know, the unloved 80s toy villainy duo on my shelf. Up next, we have an email entitled EDD number 27, which comes to us from Professor Alan Middleton. Professor Alan, of course, the host of the Quarterbin podcast, co-host of the Shortbox Showcase, along with his daughter Emily at Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, and a fa good friend of the Two True Freaks Network. The professor writes, good episode, Luke. I love the Ultraman coverage, of course. The problem is that I like the podcast too much to wait until I grab the DVDs to listen to your comments. But that's just because I dig the podcast so much. Well, thank you, Professor. I dig your podcast, too. And I'm glad you're digging the Ultraman stuff. I've got it laid out that we're going to get some regular Ultraman content on the uh, on the show. Because I think that, you know, when you talk about Daikaiju, you need to look at all aspects, not just just Godzilla, you know, and Gamera. You gotta, you know, I think it's important to say there's more to the genre than just this, these two series, you know. Of course, I say that, and then I'm including only a third series, but, you know, I've got I've got others, and our next uh, our next episode, spoilers, will deal with uh, something that's not Godzilla, Gamera, or Ultraman. Mm, intriguing. You'll find out in a few minutes. The professor continues, yes, they did overuse that bubbling, boiling water effect over and over. And I get the sense that they maybe filmed that in a very small puddle or pool. It's just it doesn't always read roiling ocean. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, it, I think it depends on, on where it's used. On Ultraman, it doesn't look as striking as it does when it's used on film. I'm thinking specifically of like in Monster Zero, when we see the uh, Exion's ships come up out of... Uh, 
Oh, what lake is it? I think it might be Lake Ashino, actually. They come up out of the lake, and it's just, I mean, the water is just churning, churning, churning. It looks really fantastic. On the TV cameras, not not necessarily as nice. All the water effects were shot in the, in the uh, you know, Subaraya water effects tank for years and years and years. And, um, yeah, that, that, that effect's just a classic. I love it. And, you know, I don't know that it's actually physically correct, but it, it needs the monsters coming. So as a kid, it always got me excited. Professor continues, and it's hard to beat a chocolate-loving monster. I mean, we're both married men. We know what that's like, right? Your wife doesn't listen to these feedback comments, does she? I should probably stop before I get myself into more trouble. <laughs> Keep them stomping. Professor Allen, host, Quarterman Podcast, co-host, Shortbox Showcase. Uh, no comment. Uh, no comment on uh, chocolate-loving monsters and the guys who are married. Uh, I, I will simply say that I did remember reading someplace uh, one time that women have a different physiological reaction to eating chocolate than men do because of the hormonal and chemical balances in their body. And so the stereotype of women loving chocolate actually has some basis in uh, chemical reality, which uh, would be, I don't know if it's true. It, it has the air of truthiness to it. I'll give it that. And uh, I know my wife uh, loves chocolate uh, you know, whereas I'll eat, you know, I have a sweet tooth, I'll eat just about anything, you know. People say to me, oh, I'm not, I'm not much for desserts. I'm like, you're a liar, you know. But I get in trouble at more meetings that way. But anyway, thank you very much again for writing a professor, and uh, I recommend all the professor, uh, professor's shows, and uh, as well as Emily's um, solo show, which is uh, uh, Uncovering the Bronze Age, all of it you can find at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. A very good uh, pair of podcasters there, and they happen to be related. Go figure on that. All right, as I said, there's a couple emails. We'll come back with some more on our next regular episode next time on an all-new Earth Destruction Directive. Thanks, Andrew. We're going to be taking a look at, like I said, not a Godzilla film, not a Gamera film, not an Ultraman show. We're going to be taking a look at the Korean film Young Gari, dating back to 1967, also known as Monster from the Deep. Now, Young Gari is essentially Korea's national monster, if such a thing exists. And this film is in the public domain, which means if you want to watch beforehand, you can head over to archive.org and search for Yongari. That's Y-O-N-G-A-R-Y. Or Y-O-N-G-G-A-R-Y. You can find it under either title, uh, I believe, on archive.org. Or just search for Monster from the Deep and you'll be able to find it. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. This is a crazy, silly sort of movie. Uh, a lot of the ideas of giant monsters being super silly can directly apply to this film. Now, having said that, uh, as I said, we're about a week away from the wide release of the legendary Godzilla. I am not going to be able to see it opening weekend, as I said earlier in the show, but I am going to try and catch it as soon as I get back into town. So expect a short five-minute freak-style guide-in episode uh, to talk about uh, Godzilla, and uh, I'll try and get that up as soon as I can after seeing it. I'm making plans right now to see it with one of my friends, and I'm hoping to get some comments from him on there as well, just to get a different perspective. And uh, just, uh, just really looking forward to this film. I've avoided the trailers. Uh, I saw the first, the teaser one, obviously, and then the first long trailer, and after that I said, nope, I am done. So all these new trailers coming out, people going crazy on the Facebook group, and I'm just, I'm avoiding it as best I can. I want to go in as, uh, you know, unspoilt as, as possible. And you know what's funny is I actually did the same thing for the American Godzilla film from 98, but it wasn't the same. You know, all the trailers for that were pretty 
pretty basic, just not showing a lot of the monster and not really showing a lot of the plot, so that was a little easier here. They give away so much in the trailers, if I don't mind my old man hat for a minute. They put in too much into movie commercials! Uh, so I just want to go in and just be, you know, enthralled, hopefully. Hopefully the movie lives up to the hype. Uh, but, again, like I said, so expect a Gaiden episode at some point. Um, once the movie is released, I'll get that out as quickly as I can. All right, that's all I've got for today. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on GMK. I'd love to hear what you think about Shogun Warriors. You want to send some pre-feedback for Yungari? I will gladly incorporate that into the show as well. So I'm going to sign off, and until next time, keep them stomping. Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. It's more frightening than I ever thought possible.